Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So this evening, I'm sat with Sadie Morgan, founding director of the Sterling Prize-winning architecture practice, DRMM, alongside Alex Phillip and Jonas. Sadie's involved in a number of advisory roles, including chairing the independent design panel for HS2, and a series of accolades, including, but definitely not limited, to Youngest Ever President of Architectural Association, New Londoner of the Year by the NLA in 2017, Female Architectural Leader of the Year at the BD Awards, AJ100's Contribution to Profession, New Year's Honours of 2020, she was awarded an OBE by the Queen for her services to design advocacy in the built environment. I must say that's quite an intimidating resume, Sadie. Thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Really looking forward to it. So let's get started, shall we? Where does chapter one begin for you? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, chapter one, I suppose, is um, coming to the end of my A-levels and realising that I hadn't really thought really hard about uh, what my what what the ne- next chapter was or the first chapter if you like in, in my professional career I had absolutely none of the right A levels to take me uh, to uh, medical school which is exactly where I wanted to be I had um, an art uh, art biology and physics none of which really really were very helpful so I sort of fell into thinking oh but I've been let, I'll go to art school for a year you know, I'll do a foundation and then uh, then trying to sort of work out what I want to do with my life, take take chemistry and then go off and be a doctor. And uh, in that in that first year, I guess I just found something that I really enjoyed. I really love making stuff. I love thinking about things. I have a three dimensional brain. So um, that that first year, that sort of taster, if you like, of a sort of creative, creative period of my life was was amazing. And then from from then on, I went on and did my degree and then my postgrad and and I think then then starts the next chapter. Well, let's get into it. Let's see let's see how this second choice careers of yours develop, shall we? <laughs> yeah. So so have it. Yeah. So having by default, I, I always say my my life is by default. There's no, there's nothing I plan. I just uh, I'm I'm an opportunist. So. Having having come out of my masters, I, I studied uh, interior and architecture at the Royal College. I suppose one of the one of the the, fir- <laughs> the, the first sign that anybody would be remotely interested in uh, in anything that I had produced was there was this incredible woman. Oh my God, she was totally fantastic. German philosopher who walked around the show. She literally looked like a million dollars. She was incredible in every sense. Uh, she was a philosopher. Yeah, said philosopher. And um, she came up to me, and I'd made a I'd made a installation for my final show. And she said, "How much? You know, do you, you know how how much money do you want for it? Uh, it was a it was a bed on um, a wardrobe with a bed on top, and uh, and um, and I had this sort of false sense that I was in some way sort of super that you know that my work was too good to be sold and she offered me 500 quid for it I was absolutely skin I tell you I was so skin and I said I don't know why I said no and I said um, I said no I couldn't possibly sell it and uh, I tell you what I've still got it that I've still got it in bits at home it's just like oh my god why didn't I sell that bloody thing but anyway she actually to her very graciousness, said, "Well, um, I'd like to commission you to do me a piece of furniture," which I did. Uh, and then that piece of furniture turned into her kitchen, and then the kitchen turned into 
her living room and and there started I guess uh, the beginnings of of my my career I read in an earlier um, piece <laughs> that you you met your your now colleagues at university is a is that correct yeah so we all met <clears throat> we all met at university uh, I was actually at university with Philip and uh, Alex uh, was our tutor and fast forward five years after this incredible woman came up to me and said you know help me out I was I didn't actually have the confidence so I said to Alex will you will you come and you know help me do this project which he did and um, at the same time he was also working with Philip and so the three of us were working together but not together if you with Alex being the kind of linchpin um Alex was then invited to uh submit some work for an exhibition uh at the time it was like the Brit pop area and there was a sort of 10 you know every you know 10 up and coming architecture practices and he said very sweetly to uh, Philip and myself you know uh let's submit our our combined work together uh, which we did, and we were chosen uh, to be in this exhibition, which was uh, absolutely, you know, kind of unexpected. And uh, at the Architecture Foundation, and we were put in a book, you know, Ten Young Practices, and we didn't even have a name. <laughs> we didn't even know what to call ourselves. I think we were Alex Dereiker, Sadie Morgan, and uh, you know, uh, Alex Dereiker, Philip Marsh, and Sadie Morgan. I think we. I mean, that, that is about as you know, kind of organised as we were. And uh, anyway, each of those ten practices, many of whom you will, you know, if you're if you're uh, if you enjoy architecture, you'll you'll know there's some very big wigs there now. And we, everybody was invited to do a competition, and uh, and we won it. And we were like, oh my god, you know, we've none of us were qualified at the time, and we'd won this competition to actually design this huge building, and uh, and we thought, oh my god, we better sort of get ourselves get our uh, SHIT together and um, and um, form a practice and, and get ourselves going, uh, which is what we did. But as I said, we needed we needed to run under the auspices of a practice that had the insurance. And um, so my father was an architect, so I phoned him up and said, "Dad, you've got to you've got to help out," you know. And he's he, he very you know very graciously said, "All right, come and work in our practice. You know, come and work in our." office we'll cover your indemnity and um which is what we did and um very tragically that that year my father died I mean he had a he had a massive heart attack and died and it was a total shock and awful and um but it kind of left us in this situation where we had to really quickly sort of get ourselves organized uh with which is what we did and we um, set ourselves up as, as a practice and and you know and from that awful adversity I guess you know DRMM was born. You said yourself you're not you're not a planner and without diving into your 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 colleagues your founders then did you allow yourself to think right this is this is me set this is you know I'm going to be a founder of an architectural practice and I'm going to be doing this for the next 25 years or was it just a means to an end? Was it just a was it just a, an excuse just to be able to then to complete this current project? Was it a means to an end? Uh, probably yes. I don't think we were. I don't think we really thought, oh, we're going to set ourselves up and become a practice, 
you know, it was such a sort of random event, if you like. I mean, if I was going to pick two people to work with for the rest of my life, would I have picked Alex and Philip? Probably not. I mean, I couldn't, it couldn't have been a better outcome. And we've had the most incredible career, but it really was serendipitous. And I think that at the time we we were just so, I mean, we were so bowled over by the fact that we'd not only been picked to be in this um exhibition but then we'd gone and won this competition that we weren't really I don't think we were really thinking long term we were literally kind of thinking like about the next you know <laughs> about the next day or how, how are we going to pay the rent or you know the sort of basics of of actually being young having absolutely no money and uh and needing to set up and and get on with a job but I, I think there was no better way of doing it would we have done it otherwise I doubt it I mean, you need you need some kind of extraordinary event to make you really kind of sit up, get your act together and get going, which is exactly what what happened. So I don't think no, I don't think we were looking at this as a long term endeavor. I think we were just sort of riding the wave at the time. And I have to say that wave came crashing down because the competition that we had won to do it's called the eco station the LDDC at the time just ran out of money and so they pulled the plug on the competition and we were like oh my god what are we going to do now you know we had this amazing opportunity it was going to be this most incredible you know innovative outrageous incredible building and suddenly there was absolutely no money. And, you know, like, I mean, you learn nowadays that this is quite normal, but at the time we couldn't believe it. And there we were left. We had nothing. We had no job. We had no, you know, kind of no prospects. We'd joined, we'd become this sort of, you know, we'd gone all to all the effort to set ourselves up as a business and we had no work. So we then had to sort of, we sort of scrabbled around for a while doing bits and pieces and uh, until, you know, doing small interior design jobs for gyms and literally, you know, kind of whatever came our way. Alex did this. We did the most incredible kind of renovation of his mum's house. And we just put together all these sort of bits and pieces of work. And, and from then managed to win another competition for Kingsdale School, which I think was was really the beginnings of of the practice and and the kind of amazing work that I would like to say we went on to do. I'm I'm curious about sort of um during during this time during these sort of highs and and the lows then of winning competitions or then not and then not not being fulfilled or doing the the grafting sort of work. Were you enjoying this? Oh, lovely. And if so, and if, yeah. okay, and so what was what were you most enjoying? Well, um, actually, actually, I say that because you look back at everything through rose-tinted glasses, don't you? It was an absolute, it was unbelievably stressful, mainly because we really didn't have any money. We were, we was really hand-to-mouth at the time. We did a bit of teaching. It wasn't particularly easy. And I think that, you know, it, the, the le- you know, when you're young, <laughs> when you're young, you know, you are super enthusiastic and you, we did loads of competitions. You realise the kind of agony that architects go through, which is you all, obviously you think you're going to win every single competition. Well, not now, but, in, you know, when you start off, you're yeah. like, oh, my God, this is totally brilliant. <laughs> it's definitely a winner, you know, and your heart and soul, everything goes into it. And it's like you're, you begin to realise, I do now because I'm on the other side of it. I judge these things, you know. It's like you're one of 100 unbelievably brilliant, you know, 
brilliant bits of, you know, kind of submissions. And sometimes it's just luck or not, whether or not you even get shortlisted or chosen or whatever it might be. So there were lots of moments of sort of utter despair where you, you know, you're sort of crushed your your enthusiasm and your passion is crushed because you're just you know you're not you're not picked or you're not chosen yeah I mean you do develop a really hard skin I I mean I, I'm super sensitive I, I you know any any type of rejection just throws me into deep despair so um I, yeah it was I look back and think oh god yeah it was the golden years but actually it was really it was hard work and um and you have to keep pulling picking yourself up brushing yourself down going for the next competition and then when you win one it's just amazing you win one and you get one built oh my god it's the best feeling ever during out of curiosity during the low points did you ever look across at the the others from your graduating year and thinking i wish i was them the guys who are who are sat comfortably in a in a fosters or a richard rogers or or any any one of the the, the high performing those the of your graduation year who've who've just who've not chosen to set up on their own was that as ever attractive no it's a really good question no is the answer I never worked for anyone I mean the irony is I look back now and I'd never ever worked for anyone I just didn't know any differently so I say you know all of those hardship things but I the minute you start earning money it's impossible to stop it so interestingly during that whole period of time I had loads of friends earning incredible sums of money I mean you know I was thinking wow that's so much money and we had this little you know I have really close friends who you know we had this deal where if they have money they'll take me out for lunch or you know if we go out together they'll pay on the understanding that when I have money I will do the same and that's worked out really well throughout my life because there's definitely periods where you know you'll go you'll be friends will be much higher earners and you do that should we go Dutch and you're like I can't even go Dutch because I can't go you know so in those first I would say in my 20s I never I never looked across and thought I wish I was doing that I'd be like you know I'd be happy for them and then when in their 30s you know my colleagues and friends were like oh my god Sadie and as my as my career took off and as DRMM you know started to win things and and win awards and be recognized you know they would they would say oh god I really want to set up on my own and and it must be amazing and but I can't it's really hard to give up my massively well-paid job to go you know to basically go and earn absolutely nothing um because you're at that stage in your life where it matters so funnily enough starting up that early meant that I had no regrets because I didn't I had never tasted the kind of life on the other side so there's no doubt sort of particularly sort of your early sort of career so you know your career is going to be dictated by the project so what was one of the most successful projects of this era well I think that that era there's probably two one was Kingsdale School which was an incredible project uh, that went on for years and years and years and really helped establish us but for me personally probably Central Street because that was I didn't call it my project. We, we, I mean, honestly, everything is done with absolutely everybody. But it was the one that I felt most involved in at the time. The one that I was sort of detailing up and and drawing up and and 
it was a huge, obviously, collective effort. But um, I, I was more invested in that probably than any other. And it was for an amazing developer called Roger Zagolovich, who was just totally fantastic to work with, really believed in us. I mean, it was a massive job to give a tiny practice who'd never built anything pretty much. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating, but, and when it was completed, it was just a huge success from stage one. It, it won London Building of the Year. It was, you know, really well covered in the press. It won loads of awards and I think at the time it was because it was a different typology. It was different. It was a different way of living. And it, it was a kind of mix between cellular living and this kind of, you know, the open plan. Uh, it was a sort of fantastic mix of the two. And it, yeah, it was just hugely successful. And it was really the sort of one of the sort of launch pads, I, w- I would say, of the business. And I it was the, it was the one of the first and probably one of the last projects that I've ever worked on, you know, kind of with that level of intensity. Because thereafter I went on to have kids, and then, you know, I'd sort of developed a different way of working. So for me, it was a really it was a love affair with that building. So let's you, you mentioned then kids. What point in your career did did kids occur? What what was happening in career wise? Career-wise, was around the time of Centaur Street and Kingsdale School. How old's DRMN at this point? Far, oh, I mean, we started when I was 24. <laughs> uh, oh, 23, 24. I mean, literally, as a baby. And, like, and, and I actually, I had kids quite young. And I absolutely, I mean, I love my kids more than anything in the world, but I absolutely didn't mean to have them, have them <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I, I, whenever I speak to my kids, I don't say that they were mistakes because they always look at me horrified. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not the word I was looking for, but I, I wasn't really planning to have kids. Um, but funnily enough, I mean, it's just, it was, it was for me, it's, it's been amazing because they're now grown up young women and oh my God, they're fantastic. But also I'm able to really you know, kind of focus on my career now. But at the time, it, you know, it's, it's hard to juggle. It's hard to juggle having kids and running a practice and you know as a woman you sort of it's interesting you tend to lose your you lose your confidence all of a sudden you know you've got you sort of you you suddenly think god can I be a mother and be a you know career woman and I you know I we did a lot together you know I'd bring the girls and they'd sit under the desk and if a client phoned I'd have to you know sort of run out with them to make sure they didn't scream or something I'd like take the children out you know (laughs) They weren't crying and, and we were looking really professional. But yeah, most of the time we just lived, you know, they were they were in their Moses baskets under the desks. Uh, I'm surprised they've turned out so amazingly. But um it was it was an it was a, it was an exciting time for us professionally, but it was it was, you know, it, it's tough. I mean it, it's tough growing a business, you know, growing a family and uh and and it's exhausting. So in the pod, we talk about these repeating sort of events of, of accelerating steep learning curves, and then you're putting this into practice whereby sort of you're sort of consolidating and then sparks and changes happen. Were the kids a catalyst for a change in your career at Curiosity? I don't think the girls were a catalyst for change necessarily, but I think what it, what, what it meant was that I had to change the way that I worked so we would have a sit, you know, so I wasn't able to, I didn't feel like I was able, maybe it was a confidence thing, or maybe it was a time thing to actually run projects. 
So what I tended to do is take a step back. And I, I actually, my project was the office at that time. My project was kind of, you know, making sure that we had a great team and that everybody was really happy. And I did absolutely everything. You know, I did the VAT, I did the invoices, I did the contracts. I kind of, in, in a way, I stepped back and did the, I didn't do the architecture per se. I did everything else. And what that meant was that I had a lot of confidence then in organizing, strategizing, and and I also understood the importance of learning externally. And because I had really like none of us had really ever worked for anybody else, we would we didn't know. I mean, it's like, do you invoice? How much do you pay your staff? How, I mean, we literally knew nothing. So the only way to learn those things was to go and do jobs else. Well, not jobs, but you know, either volunteer or or be exposed to other. Uh, environments so so what that meant was that I would take on these external roles so I became a council member at the architectural association which then led on to me being the treasurer and then eventually the president and you know I would be I would be spending time trying to learn from doing other jobs and other roles in order to take that learning back to DRMM but without changing jobs so uh, you know it probably wasn't a catalyst because it was a slow burn but it but what it meant was that I changed the way that I worked and therefore had to find uh, you know alternative ways of educating myself is that and uh, I'll be careful I'll word word this now as a team a team of three sort of founders were you willing then in order to, to take up that sort of that role of sort of chief organizer or did that go against the great your own personal grain of, of this naturally sort of creative individual no because it's unbelievably creative it's a really creative putting teams together building an office is a project in itself and actually i think requires as much love and attention and creativity as making a building and if i if i think about the work that i do now it's fundamentally in you know that that the way that I the, the things that I learned then in terms of connecting people you know thinking about what might happen if or who might I work with who might we collaborate with if we if we can't do you know it's like needs must you're like oh my goodness we need x y and z skills in the office but we can't afford to pay them how might we you know, how might we overcome that problem? Oh, well, we collaborate with that person or we find somebody who'll come into the office a day a week and do, you know, and there's lots of, it's a very creative process because you're building, I, I see everything three-dimensionally. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're building a, a context and an environment in which people are then able to go ahead and build physical things. I was building something. It just wasn't a physical man manifestation. It was a it was a kind of human manifestation. Alex always used to say, Sadie, you're the heart. I'm the, I'm the head and Philip's the hands of this organization. And that was a really nice way of looking at it. And I think when you realize what you're good at, I mean, you know, I spent ages thinking, actually, I, I need to be the head. I need to be the intellectual one. And and go off and do all the, of these things, but but in the end, you you know it's important to push yourself. It's important important to put yourself in a situation where you're outside of your comfort zone. But also, you have to appreciate the things that you're good at, and 
oh my God, I mean, that's taken me 30 years, but um, I now know what I'm good at and what, most importantly, what I'm really bad at. So that, so that brings me quite nicely. I spoke to someone who knew you quite well during this time and I asked them the question about what they described your, your most prominent traits are. And they use the words empathy, caring, open. Now, whether this is my cynical mind or, or not, I took away from that thinking <laughs> that, that, that is lovely to hear. But are those then sort of, are they very difficult to hold on to as your career progresses? Have you ever felt the need to put out the elbows for your own benefit? I think, do you know what? I think you can do, I think I'm a great believer in what goes around comes around. And I, that comes from my upbringing. So I, I brought up in a commune. I spent my life, you know, my early life looking after people, but being looked after. And that's an incredible privilege. And it's an incredible way, I think, and a really good philosophy in life. So I like taking people with me. I'll, I'll be critical if I need to be, but I will be a critical friend. And so <clears throat> um, I think that it's really important to be positive and encouraging so, you know, I used to sound the least competitive person I know, and everyone would just fall off their chairs laughing. Um, so I don't say that anymore because it's like really glib because I realize that I am actually really competitive. <laughs> um, but I, and I am, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to win things and I want to, you know, I'm, I want to succeed in my career and I want to do well, but I don't think I want to do that at the expense of others. And the, the, the lesson in growing a company and building a team and you know is that you do things together and I said earlier I I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at well I'm I'm really not good at doing the detail and I'm an amazing delegator and if you know that about yourself and you you understand that you know you're you like to think about stuff but you don't actually like to do it (laughs) then you need to, you can't do that alone and you can't piss people off on the way, you know, because you need to, they need to be with you and they want to work with you and they want to do it with you and you need to, you know, encourage them and enthuse them so that they they feel, well, not they don't feel, I mean, they are part of the process. So I think if if people say I'm empathetic and I'm open, you know, I do, I overshare, which isn't always a great trait, but I would say I I generally prefer to have people with me and I don't like upsetting people because I don't like being upset and I don't like discouraging people and telling them they're not good at something. I'd much rather find a way of being positive and I'd, I'd much rather do things because I'm, I'd much rather achieve not through ruthlessness <laughs> because I think it's perfectly possible to. I don't think you have to be aggressively hard-nosed in order to be successful I mean you might you know that might not be the case if you want to earn shed loads of money but I think if you want to have a fulfilling career that that you're proud of keep your elbows in and use them to lift rather than you know push down I would say okay well to to anyone who doesn't know you very very well or doesn't know I suppose the at this this time what was happening with Sadiram what was what was the biggest setback? I mean, in terms of career, you're you're, you're always having setbacks, and um, I think one of the biggest setbacks for us was that we nearly won but didn't the 
handball arena at, for the Olympics. And, uh, and that was, it was ours to lose and we lost it mainly because we stuck to our guns and we said we wanted to build it in cross laminated timber and it was all just too risky and, and it was a material that no one had heard of. And I think if, uh, you know, on reflection, had we been more uh, open to building it in a different material or not being so totally kind of single-mindedly, you know, wanting to, to do it in that way. And we did for all the right reasons because it's sustainable. And we were just, but somebody said to us, we're bleeding edge. You know, we are, we, we were always way too <laughs> far ahead um, to the point of being a bit scary. Um, not scary, but, you know, um, m- maybe a step too far for, for some people. And that was definitely one of the biggest, biggest disappointments. And we, you know, it was, oh my God, it took me, it took us all a long time to get over that. I don't know if we still have, you know, um, because it would have been a career defining moment. And, but architects, our lives are full of those things. Our lives are absolutely full of, you know, the competition we didn't win. Everybody's got, you know, well, we used to say um, drawers full of old competitions. Now you've probably got computers full of them, but it is, you know, it is the life of an architect. So I suppose in terms of the business, we were still, you know, having to suffer, not always winning things, but trying to learn from why you didn't. And then my own health, I got, I got very sick. I got, um, I got breast cancer. And I suppose at that point, if you're talking about defining moments, for me, that was personally a really defining moment because you suddenly just, you know, you look at, you look at life and you think, geez, you know, there's, you know, I might not be alive in a year's time or two years time, in which case, you know, you absolutely just, you totally redefine what, what your, what your priorities are. And suddenly all of those things don't seem that important anymore. And that's an incredible, I always say, if I stay alive, it's the, it's the best thing that can happen to you because you are free suddenly of all of the small stuff and all of the things that, you know, really, really matter, um, suddenly don't seem so important. And that's, that kind of is quite freeing. And it allows you to be much more in tune with stuff and much more able to say what you want to do and what you don't want to do and, uh, and what, and, and, you know, be clear about the choices that you want to make. So before we turn the recorder on, so we, we had a quick sort of um, recap of many of uh, of your ex- external appointments and uh, accomplishments and accreditations the one i wanted to pick your brains with now is on hs2 and i i heard a story that you didn't put your own name forward someone else did is that right well it, not not quite like that but I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you the story so so i've been invited to help hs2 as, as like one of 50 people to help put their design vision down so at at the time it was really quite innovative actually they they were looking to ask the design community how they could be a good client and I was one of those people that contributed to that fast forward I don't know a couple of weeks or a month or two thereafter and a friend of mine said oh Sadie they're looking for somebody to chair their design panel why don't you put yourself forward and I was thinking, oh, no, it's like, don't we, it's not really something I'd do. But I just, I just finished my presidency at the Architectural Association and I, and I was looking for 
something you know sort of something else to do with that sort of spare time and not it wasn't spare time but it was you know as I said before I, I really thought it was important to do outside have outside perspective so I thought okay well I'll, I'll look in I'll look in the newspapers to see if I could find the advert so I, I wrote and said could you tell me where the advert is you know to the uh, <clears throat> to the organizers and I didn't hear back and I thought oh that's you know fair enough that's a bit rude and then um but you know whatever uh and then I ha- then they sent a note back saying um it isn't being advertised and uh we'll but but we'll let you know or something I'm like that's a bit odd so two or three days later I, I get a note saying um the headhunter uh, has agreed to speak to you and I'm like, what is a headhunter? You know, honestly, that's so naive. I'm like, I didn't even, like, what is a headhunter? And um, and so I get this call from this headhunter who's like, basically, do you realise uh, that this is a very high-profile role? And, uh, and I'm like, immediately, oh, my God, put my back up. And I'm like, yes, I do. I had nothing, no idea whatsoever. So I'm like, yes, I do know what a high profile role is. And and so do do realize that you need basically, you know, the inference was, who are you, <laughs> and and why on earth would you be putting yourself forward? Because I've <laughs> clearly never heard of you, and you know, and you don't have sir in front of your name, and. Uh, and I'm just like, oh, my goodness me. And he honestly, he just went on and on, you know, like, um, do you have media training? And uh, and I'm like, I've been on Radio 4. Mm. Or, you know, you can imagine. It's like, no, I haven't. <laughs> and, um, and um, so, you know, what do you like in front of a camera? And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know. And uh, anyway, the long and the short is uh, he upset me so much that I'm like, I'm going to go for this job. He said, all right, well, I'll send you the details. <clears throat> and uh, and I'd been really punchy back on the phone because, you know, I was like, yes, I can do this. And of course, I'm... Rightly so, by the sounds of things. Yeah. And then he sent a job description through. And I honestly, I'm, you know, that awful pit in your stomach. I just felt sick. And I was just like, oh, this is so humiliating. I can't believe, you know, that I'm, I've asked to do this because it literally, it was, you know, it was so, I, I looked at it and I thought it's just so out of reach and I'm just now going to have to really back down and sort of say, yeah, actually I can't do it. And I'm, you know, it's, it, I really shouldn't have put myself forward kind of thing. And it was my, my assistant who, uh, the office manager who read it and she's like, Sadie, you can do this standing on your head you know, and I'm like, no, but I've never done this. And she's like, yes, you have. You've just done it in a different context. You know, yes, you have done public speaking. You've just done it like this. Or yes, you have had, you know, yes, you are high profile. You're just high, you know, or you are this or you are. And we literally, we went through point by point and she made me rewrite my CV, which I didn't really have because I've never applied for a job. And basically did point by point. I got an interview. I had absolutely nothing to lose. And I won't go into it, but the interview was a complete disaster. Oh, my God, it was a complete disaster. I knocked over my water. I knocked over my water and then I'm like, no wonder I knock over my water because you've given me you've given me water in a dentist plastic cup. Now, if, you've got, <laughs> if you're talking about good design, you know, where's your beautiful, you know, glass or mug? I mean, you know, you need you need good design to be throughout your whole organization and da, 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 you know, and I left. 
Uh, and they said, is there anything you'd like to say before you left? And I thought, I don't know what came over me. And I said, well, at least because it, there was a lot of elderly white men who were interviewing me for a job that would be lasting 20 years. And I said, at least, well, at least I might be alive when I, when this thing opens. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, I can, I mean, I, I literally, I didn't sleep for weeks thinking, how could I be so rude? Or what was I thinking? Anyway, they gave me the job. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And uh, yeah, and I love, I've loved every, every minute of it. And then, and on the back of that, all these amazing other opportunities came along. And the next amazing thing that came along was for the National Infrastructure Commission. And on the back of being the chair of the uh, HST, I was invited. I had this an, an extraordinary email saying, my dear Sadie, if I may be so bold, you know, we'd like to speak to you on the telephone about this opportunity to sit on the National Infrastructure Commission and I and I'm terrible on the telephone so I so I thought oh no I this is a disaster so I wrote back and said um actually I'm passing Westminster complete lie uh tomorrow why don't I pop in and have a chat and um so yeah, I popped in and ended up having a chat with uh, Lord Adonis Andrew Adonis who was uh, at the time the chair and they were just looking for interim commissioners. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a sort of proper long-term thing. It was for, for the short term. And so he said, um, you know, he, he was chatting away and talking about the commission. And and I didn't realise at the time, but it was a job interview pretty much. And uh, and it was all very, it was in the, you know, it was in the Lords. It was all sort of terribly posh and it was, you know, it was very intimidating and as I left, I was pulled aside by, you know, they have all, all the, all the, minions around and and uh, and he said is there anything you'd like to tell us and I'm like what well, I'm not entirely sure where this is going you know and uh, I'm like well I mean sounds like an amazing job he said no no is there anything that in your past that might embarrass the government and I'm like oh my god yes <laughs> you know, like, where do I start and um and uh and I was so shocked at being asked this question. And, I, you know, I'm like, what do they mean? Do they mean when I did this or this? Or, you know, I'm not going to, literally, I'm not going to go into, you know. But any of you can You can think, tell me after. I promise yeah, I won't record you, it. But honestly, you can, you know, if you just imagine your teenage years and you think... I, is I am doing. I'm yeah, getting exactly. sweaty palms already. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine. And I just looked at him and went, no. And uh, I ran out and I phoned a friend. And I said, what do they mean? What do they mean by this? And he said, do you pay your taxes? And I'm like, of course I pay my taxes. You know, and I could, you know, and uh, he said, oh, you'll be fine then. And, uh, uh, but that was, that was my kind of, yeah, that was my initiation in, into government circles, which of course, you know, they need, of course they need to now ask you those questions quite rightly. But it, it was very funny. Uh, oh, I, w- yeah. I wish now you'd reeled off all your conquests now, and then and then they just asked, right. you know, do, <laughs> do you pay your taxes? The end of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, and then you know, so I've I've had an extraordinary. I mean, that that was you know, I've absolutely loved being on the commission, and you know, these things once you get your confidence up and you you realise that you're able to contribute and that you can you know bring things to. A discussion and and so forth that it you know enables you then to go on and and do do other things so that yeah that was that was a I never forget that interview and actually Lord Adonis was such a great you know kind of mentor and a very inclusive chair it was great well earlier in the episode I asked you about the biggest setbacks 
Now, we've just talked about HS2, which is clearly a, you know, a monumental sort of uh, tick of approval in your in your career so far. But there's there's something I mentioned in the intro, isn't there? There's there's the big sterling prize coming yet. So tell us how this how this came about. Well, the sterling prize, it was an, I mean, we've we've been shortlisted twice for the sterling prize, both for really amazing projects. But the the project that won it was Hastings Pier, and that was a project that was twelve years in the making, and because of that, had lots and lots of different people whacking on it, but a small team the whole way through. To be honest, it wasn't one project that I was that, you know, so that heavily involved in, so I can't take the, take the real credit. Alex was really he- uh, headed up that one. But it was, an, it was a project that everybody was involved with because it, was, it took so long. And because it was really, it was a project that was, it was, it was more about curating, you know, it was more about how you step back from doing what you really want to do but you do what's best for others. And what I mean by that is that when we won the competition, it was really open. You know, you're just like, what are you going to do with a peer? You know, you're, you're an architecture practice. What do you want to do? Build an amazing, you know, building at the end of it or, you know, build that statement building. And we soon realized that that was absolutely not the right thing to do. And that actually there wasn't the sort of money or the opportunity to be able to do that. And the best thing to do was to, make a make a place that facilitated others to do things and or other opportunities and we also did it in collaboration with pretty much the whole of Hastings and um, you know huge groups of people all of whom were really involved along and and with it with that journey and I think because of that it has this energy about it because it was made with love and it was made with passion and it was made with a kind of ambition that was about the community. And it's an extraordinary place. And when we were shortlisted, honestly, having been shortlisted twice, we were like, oh, so it's like, like clearly we're just never going to win this bloody prize. And, uh, and they said to us, you know, you have to, everyone has to go to the posh dinner and the black tie dinner. And we're like, we don't want to do that. We want to have a, we want to have a party in Hastings with the whole of Hastings now, actually, it was it was my PA at the time who who said, "Sadie, I think we should invite the whole of Hastings to the party." And I'm like, "You're kidding me!" You know, it's like we had no money at all. <laughs> it's like, it's like, what kind of idea is this? And I'm like, I have to say, I was really poo pooed it. And I'm like, oh, this is a really bad idea. And she was amazing, Roz. And she just met. She went. She kept saying, "No, this is the right thing to do. We should have a party and invite everybody." you know, they can bring their own. And, you know, so in the end, we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. So we, uh, it was on, it, it was on Halloween and the whole of Hastings anyway, do loads of fun stuff, you know, and we just put it out in on social media and all the platforms that we were going to have a party. Anyone was welcome. And it was Halloween. So loads of people came in Halloween outfits. And at the time, the BBC, because it was televised, said, we, we're going to come and, you know, sort of take, Take, take the highs, take the lows. We're gonna we're gonna film film the uh, event, and we we did say we didn't want to go to the black tie, but they said no, you have to have somebody in somebody has to come. So Alex, Alex went to uh, the RIBA uh, dinner, and the rest of us all dressed up in Halloween outfits, and uh, we were there with the BBC. And I I um I thought, well, just in case we, you know, I was allocated to speak in case we win. You Honestly, you don't know. I promise you, you have absolutely no idea if you're going to win or not. 
Uh, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll wear a kind of, I won't look too Halloween-y, you know, I'll do my best. Mm. Um, so I wore a nice dress, but I put these fangs in, those kind of Dracula fangs that you stick to your teeth. <laughs> and um, you can imagine we'd all, we'd all enjoyed a few glasses of champagne anyway. And, you know, we were sort of in the party mood. And, uh, and then we had this live link up to, you know, to the Grosvenor House Hotel or wherever it was, the Roundhouse in, in Camden, I think. And honestly, when they said we'd won the whole of, we were just surrounded by all of our friends, all of our family, hundreds of people from the, thousands of people from the community, you know, and the whole pier just erupted. It was the best night, one of the best nights of my life. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And then, then of course, you know, we had to be interviewed by the BBC. And Here I, comes your you know, media skills here now. Here comes my media skills. Here comes the, you know, uh, the, the guy with the microphone on the pier and uh, he's asking me all these questions and I'm lit I'm like this this is the best night of my life <laughs> it's really amazing and I'm thinking why am I lisping I must be really pissed and um I've had loads of champagne and then and I'm like realize I've got these bloody um these uh your fangs uh, still in my fangs still in oh my god my mother is like i cannot believe your <laughs> your moment of fame when you're there with fangs <laughs> in uh but it was it was a brilliant it's a brilliant it was a brilliant night it's a brilliant project to win the sterling prize with uh because it it was such a intensive process and and involved so many people it was yeah it was amazing absolutely amazing uh, well, that, listen, that I think that brings us on really, really uh, nicely. We've got to wrap this up, sort of, Sadie. But before we do, I wanted to ask you just a couple of sort of quick fire questions, if you don't mind. Sure. For someone for someone who's had a phenomenal career, jam packed with, as we mentioned before, accolades, accreditations, big big gigs in uh, in in, pu- in public um, development as well as as well as private. What's next for you to learn? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I think how you influence and make change is something that I'm really interested in because the the more you you're in position or have the opportunity to help shape policy or help shape big decisions, there's a massive responsibility on you to do that. I mean, being serious now, you know, to do that thoughtfully and to make sure that you are being as inclusive as possible. So for me, the thing that I want to learn is how to make sure that as we move forward in terms of our infrastructure and our built environment, that we that we do so in a way that is respective of the environment and is more importantly, respective of the people that use it. And I think that there's a lot to learn uh, for us as an industry in relation to that and also for me to learn in order to how to help in a, in a small way move that forward. Okay. And then last question, what drove you in those earliest days, earliest sort of chapters of your, your career, when the three of you were just starting out, does the same thing still drive you now? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I you know, it's, it's about, uh, this sounds really corny, but it's true. It's just like making people's lives better, transforming people's lives. And you either do that through the architecture you build or the spaces that you make or the policies that you help shape. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in those of us who have uh, any opportunity or capability or, you know, ability to do that, that that's what you should do. 
Um, so I believe in public service and I believe that you, you know, we should, you know, to, to use my talents as best I can to make, oh, it sounds so bad, you know, but it's true, it's like to make the world a better place. So Put your fangs in, it might sound better. Yeah. Yeah, to make the world a better place. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but but it's true. It's true. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm. You know. Uh, but that that's that's what drives me. Always has. Well, Sadie, thank you very much. On that really positive note, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. So, thank you again. No oh, pleasure. Great pleasure. <laughs>